Our sermon text for this morning will be Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. But before you go there, turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take off your sandals. I'll take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. When we approach the Word of God, especially in the preaching moment, we must understand that with Bibles open, we are standing on holy ground. With the Holy Scriptures before us, we are here to encounter the Holy God made manifest in the Holy Son, Jesus Christ. So when we look at the Word of God, when the Bible speaks, it is as though God speaks. And so as we would consider our text even this morning here in Mark, let us do so with a holy reverence as we look to meet Jesus Christ in His Word. Mark chapter 7, picking up in verse six, verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed. And he said to him, Ephephtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This ends the reading of the Word of God. Father, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your Word this morning, that it would be effective upon your people and that we would leave here worshipers of Jesus Christ, every single one of us. Amen.
Notice with me here in this section, we see that Mark is giving us another healing account. But we must notice first, as we would consider this, the location. Sometimes we would read where these movements of Jesus in the Gospels, and we kind of gloss over that because we want to get to the main point. What's the big action item that's taking place? Well, we shouldn't do that here. Because verse 31 helps us to understand really the meaning and the purpose and why Mark is giving us this account. Mark is the only one who gives us this account in any great detail. Matthew gives us three verses of it. But Mark makes it very um, specific that he wants to tell us this story. He wants to tell his original audience in Rome this account for very good reason. And part of understanding how and why it's important is the locations that we see in verse 31. We notice here that Jesus is moving again. In the previous account, he was up in the Tyre and Sidon region, which is in the northwestern part outside of Israel proper. And he goes and he heals a Syrophoenician woman's daughter. They have this dialogue about the dog. She's a Gentile. And this is important to understand. He's outside the borders of Israel in this way, outside of the Jewish nation. Jesus, the Messiah who was promised from long ago, is now beginning to make movements outside of Israel proper. This is very important for Mark and his listeners to understand. Because what Mark is doing here in verse 31 is he's tracing the movement of Jesus so that you can see as he begins to foreshadow the Gentile mission. This is so important for us to understand. Location matters here. So Jesus is traveling, and I'm not going to draw a map in your mind here, but from Tyre to Sidon, crosses the Sea of Galilee, and goes to the eastern side of the Jordan River. This is an area called the Decapolis. Well, just break this word down. Deca is ten, and then polis means city. This is the land or the region of ten cities where Jesus is. It's only mentioned three times in the entire scriptures. Mark will mention it twice, and Matthew will mention it one time right before the Sermon on the Mount. So we don't get much by way of the term of the Decapolis. Other places in your Bible, you might say, to the land beyond the Jordan. That's where they're talking about, is this region, this area that Jesus finds himself in. So it's the land of ten cities. It's mostly a Hellenistic area populated by Greeks. It's outside of really kind of, it's, it's within the Herodian Empire, but it's outside of Judaism, really, in this area at the time of the first century. I think it's important that we would understand a little bit more about this region, because this becomes a place of great importance. Don't gloss over the Decapolis when you think about it. One of the major cities of the Ten Cities was Damascus. Where is Paul going when he encounters Jesus in Acts chapter 9? He's on the road to Damascus. Where does Paul receive the Holy Spirit and where is he baptized? In Damascus. And Paul is given in Damascus the charge to the Gentile ministry to go and to proclaim Jesus outside the borders of Israel. To Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Well, Jesus is here in this area right now. Now, a Gentile audience would hear this, and it would quickly make them understand. He's wanting to show us that the gospel is not for Jews only. This isn't just a Jewish story. It's the mystery hidden throughout the ages. Colossians 1, 
that Gentiles were to be brought in to the promises of Abraham, that we would be the people of God, Christ in you, the hope of glory, that there would be one people in Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile together, the Israel of God, the church of Jesus Christ. And so as they hear this and they see that Jesus is actually outside of the borders of Israel, it is a comfort to them who are receiving this letter in Rome, who are largely Gentiles. Well, guess what? We can fast forward 2,000 years. This is a comfort to you, who, is lar- who are largely Gentiles in North Kingstown, Rhode Island right now, meaning that we are not Jews by birth. But we are children of the promise through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we need to hear this message this morning. Look, at, look with me at verse 32. We would read there that they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. This is interesting. Jesus' reputation precedes him. It's like wherever he goes, they know he's coming. Even in this outside territory among the ten cities outside of Israel. They don't have their Old Testaments. They're not looking for a Messiah. Yet Jesus is recognized by them. Could it be that word of mouth spread? Potentially, but there's no Facebook. There's no social media. They're not calling each other and letting them know, like, hey, there's this guy. He's not trending on Twitter. So how does this work? Well, I would actually call your attention and ask you to turn back to chapter 5, verse 19. You remember there's this really long section where Jesus tells his disciples that we're going to go across the Sea of Galilee through this megastorm that he calms, to find this man who is running around naked in these tombs that they've shackled up. He's not in his right mind. He's either schizophrenic, whatever. He's demon-possessed in the craziest way. He is possessed by thousands of demons. Yet Mark gives us 20 verses about this one man in this one account, that Jesus goes so far out of his way to find this one brother. And he heals him. And then the man's like, I want to be your disciple. I want to get back on the boat with you. And what does Jesus say to the man? Verse 18, as he, Jesus, was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with them. And he did not permit him. Jesus says, no, don't follow me. That's interesting. And he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And where did he go? And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. You see what's happening here. There's a forerunner who's in the ten cities proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. And look what he's done for me. Well, now the people have been prepared, similar how John is preparing the way in the wilderness. Now the people recognize the one who did this work to this man He's here. And we have seen and heard through the testimony of this demon-possessed man that Jesus Christ changes lives. Jesus Christ heals people. So what do they do? They recognize that the one who has been, the testimony we've heard, he has come here. His reputation precedes him. And now he has arrived in the flesh. So what happens? We see here's the issue of the text right before us. There's a man who could not hear, and connected with his his lack of hearing, 
was a speech impediment. It's not likely that he was this way from birth, as we'll see as the text uh, will show us. But nonetheless, we don't have any details of how he's infirmed or, or the cause of this. But what we do know is this man cannot hear, and he has a trouble speaking. And so his friends or his family, whoever the they is, we don't have the details, bring him to Jesus. You know, I pause for a minute, and I think about the they in verse 32. How loving they were. How much they, whoever they are, care about this man. What kind of true friends they were to this man. He wouldn't have heard that Jesus was in town. He would have been out of the loop. I think there's an important lesson we could just make from this. We want to be those kind of friends. That's the kind of people we want to be. Who bring our friends to Jesus. We want to be those that are bringing and interceding because they don't just bring him to Jesus. They beg him twice in a row now. The Gentile woman is begging Jesus. Now this group is begging Jesus. They are casting themselves down upon the mercy of Christ. They are humbling themselves before Jesus. They begged him to do something for their friend. Brothers and sisters, we need to intercede for our friends, our lost friends. Do we beg God for the salvation of our lost neighbors? People that we say we love, we're kind to them, but let us be interceding before Jesus for them. While this is a lesson, it's not the point. The point here that we would see of these two verses is that Jesus comes to the least of these. Jesus comes to the least of these. You think about this man here who is deaf and struggles with his speech. For for this man, it was just another day. I'm sure he wakes up that morning and assumes that today will be just like yesterday and tomorrow will be the same. I'm just going through this life. This is my lot in life. This is what it is. Except for this day, one little thing was different. Jesus was in town. And when Jesus arrives, the ordinary becomes extraordinary. And this man here, we don't know his name, but this man was about to experience the greatest day of his life. And without hesitation, I guarantee that he told this story to everybody that this was the greatest day of my life. I mean, not many people say that God stuck his fingers in my ears. Or touched my tongue. Nonetheless, we will get to that. So here we have before us here in verses 31 and 32, we have a deaf man, speech is impaired, presumably a Gentile, outside of Israel proper, outside of the region. This is one that many in society of his, in the society of his day would have considered the least of these. So what I want us to understand here from these verses is that Jesus comes to the least of these. But we have to ask why? Why would he do this? I'm sure we know the answer. Because he is the good shepherd. Because Jesus is the good shepherd. And it is what he said in John chapter 10 verse 16. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also 
and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. The irony of this whole passage is that the deaf man hears the voice of Jesus, and it makes all the difference in his life. So this was no ordinary day. No, not for this man. For this day, he had a divine appointment with God. Jesus comes to the least of these. Follow along now, picking up in verse 33. We would notice here, in taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers in his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. It's important to note that Jesus gives attention to the pleas, the pleads of the they. Of those that brought the man, Jesus heard their cry. They're begging for their friend. And Jesus acknowledges it. And Jesus is going to do something about it. And he takes him aside privately. Understand this. Brothers and sisters, never stop praying and begging God for those whom you love. It might take 40 years Do you love that person that much? God delights in the salvation of sinners. Pray as though you believe that. But this event here was to be a private matter. It was a private matter between Jesus and the man. He puts his fingers in his ears, and most likely Jesus spits on his hand and touches the man's tongue. Now, I was reading this this week, And I said, what is going on here? If you are a germaphobe, you are squeamish right now. This is like the invasion of space. Like intimate space. Like touching places on someone else's body you don't want to touch. I wouldn't want to do this. Fingers in someone else's ears and someone's someone's tongue. I have to ask the question, was this really necessary? Was this really necessary? Think about it. All the way up until this point in Mark. Think about all the healings that have taken place. And there's been many of them. Peter's mother-in-law, Jesus takes her by the hand and lifts her up. Jesus lays his hand upon a leper. Jesus told a paralyzed man by his spoken word, rise up and walk. Jesus told the man with a withered hand, open your hand. The woman with a discharge of blood, she touches the garment of Jesus. Jairus' daughter, 12 years old, he comes in and, and, and speaks a word to her and takes her by the hand and raises her up. Previously, in the previous section, he heals this girl who is demon-possessed, and she's not even in the same room as him. She's not even in the same location. So was this really necessary? He could have just spoken a word, and it would have been done. He didn't have to stick his fingers in his ears or touch his tongue. Now this? What's happening here? We must ask of this. What do we see going on? I want to give you three things. First, you see the personal nature of Jesus' healing. It is intimate and it is close. I think the second thing we can see from doing this is the humility of Jesus. He never viewed anyone as below him. Not this man. He was willing to even touch the least of these. He was not grossed out by the infirmities of others. He loved his image bearers. 
The third thing I think we can see from this touch of Jesus, he got down on the man's level. Think about it. As he sees this man and he takes him away privately and he, and he locks eyes with him. Certainly with a, with a word, Jesus could have done it all, but he wants to show this man his love for him. And so he gets onto his level and he touches him and he puts his fingers in his ears as a sign to him, I'm going to do something for you. And he spits on his hand and he, and he reaches out and this man must have been thinking, what is going on here? And he puts, his, he puts his hand on his tongue as a sign to him, I'm going to make you well. The man cannot hear, so Jesus employs the power of touch. Same with touching his tongue. What do we see here? We see the compassion and absolute sympathy of Jesus Christ fully on display. And we're coming up to the climatic moment here in verse 34. As he's put his fingers in his ears, he looks up to heaven as a sign and a recognition of where power comes from. This is, a, this, is a, this is a movement of divinity. Jesus could have looked right at him, but it is though that Christ descended from the Father. And it is a nod to divinity. As Christ puts his fingers in his ear, he looks up to heaven and it says he sighed. He sighed. I think this is very, very important for us to see here. In this moment, Mark is, Mark is peeling back a layer and exposing us the heart of Jesus. In one of the most beautiful texts and the beautiful lines in all of the Gospels, he sighed. Literally, this means he groaned in pain. Why? Because he had to heal someone? No. No, it wasn't because of that at all. What we see in this moment as Jesus is about to heal this man is that he is entering into the man's hurt. He is feeling the pain that this man has. Jesus felt the burden of the curse and its effects. He took his pain. Jesus' heart hurt here. He sighed. This week I was working through this passage and working through my exegesis and I'm sitting at the table. Kids had gone off to another VBS. It was a quiet house. I've got my Bible open. I've got my notes, making my observations, connections, homiletical head, all the stuff. And I get to this point and I read and it says, he sighed. I'm like, all right. And it hit me so hard. In that moment, I was so overwhelmed with the compassion of Jesus. The empathy of Jesus, the sympathy of Jesus to, to enter into this man, to feel the burden and the pain that this man had. So I, I don't need to do sermon prep. I need to worship right now. I was just, I sat there at my table just crying Thankful that we have a Savior who entered into humanity to bear our burdens, who felt the weight of the curse and sin, and who did something about it. Brothers and sisters, when we think about Jesus Christ, we are to worship him. This is not the passing of information. It is information to transformation so that we would worship him. The end of all things is worship. 
that we would lay ourselves down before Christ. You have never thought too high a thought of Jesus. You have never thought Jesus was too lovely. You have never thought that Jesus loved too much. And when we see him, it will be as just, our, our, even what we remember would just pale into comparison to the beauty and the majesty and the glory when we look upon him face to face. Jesus sighed here. I can only imagine what, was, what he was thinking in that moment. The text doesn't give us this, but I think about in Genesis 1.31. God created everything, and behold, at the end of all of his creation, he says it was very good. Well, this right here isn't very good. Deaf, speech impediment. No, this wasn't the way it was originally created. Man and woman created in the garden were in the paradise of God. Yes, we know the plan from eternity past was redemption through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But they were created innocent beings without infirmity, without deafness, without any of these physical ailments. This comes by Genesis 3, but not Genesis 1 and 2. This is where the great bookends of the Bible, Revelation 21, 22. It's the renewal of all things. We're on our way there. But until then, this is a result of the curse and the fall of man. You think about Jesus when he's at the tomb of Lazarus says that he inwardly groaned and he was deeply moved in his spirit where his friend died and people were weeping. In this moment, what do we see here? Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Sin, pain, mental illness, physical infirmity, they were not in the original creation. Brothers and sisters, understand this. Suffering is a tool to conform us to the image of God. I understand that. Jesus does not delight in the effects of the curse. And I would say that there are many of us, even here this morning, who are suffering the effects of the curse by no choice of our own. There are those among us that suffer with the hardness of hearing. RA, cancer, tumors, failed kidneys, Miscarriages, infertility, strokes, Parkinson's, Lyme disease, the pain and difficulty of just aging. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you, you have a Savior that enters into your pain with you. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. No, but we have a brother that has gone before us, the God-man, who invaded humanity and took upon himself flesh and felt the pain of living in a sin-cursed world. He sighed. Think about us. We are redeemed people, yet still battling remaining sin. How do you feel when you see the suffering around you? When you're helping people at the end of their life? When we're acquainted and surrounded by death, disease, Inside you, don't you have this feeling that if I could just fix this, I would? That there are children that are living in third world countries that can't eat? That if I could end poverty and child hunger and physical infirmities, we hurt for those that are suffering? We sigh and say, oh, that I could fix this. And if I could end it, I absolutely would. How much more the Son of God as he stood before this brother. But in this case, he does. 
Notice here the end of verse 34. He says, Ephatha, that is, be open. In verse 35, what's the result? His ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. In this moment, you see Jesus fulfilling what Isaiah said in chapter 35. Speaking of the the messianic uh, entrance into this world and the renewal of things through Jesus Christ, Isaiah prophesied some 700, 800 years before this event happened and said, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. It is occurring right before everyone's eyes here. And we get to see it too. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came to reverse the curse. Jesus came to tear down the kingdom of darkness and to usher in the kingdom of God. And how does he do it? Right here we see in one small scale, yes, he does it by healing. But more importantly, he does it through dying and rising again from the dead. We know this because in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, we would read that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. Brothers and sisters, we must understand that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the person, work, ministry, life, death of Jesus Christ, all of our hope is found. That Jesus came to, to, to make right and reverse the curse that occurred in Eden. That the seed of the woman would one day come and bruise the head of the serpent. And that's what he does. But we must also understand this. That forgiveness of sins is given to us freely. That we have forgiveness because Jesus was forsaken upon the cross. The end of Deuteronomy, you get these Two mountains. And on one mountain, they're proclaiming all the blessings for covenant obedience. Blessed will be you if you keep the words of this covenant and you do these things. And then they're pronouncing all the curses for covenant disobedience. And these are the things that will fall upon your head when you break this covenant. What we understand here is that we are all the covenant breakers. And there was only one man who could climb that mountain and say that he's the covenant keeper who loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and his neighbor as himself, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. But what happens as Jesus offers himself upon the cross is that he stands in the place of the covenant breakers. And as he hangs upon the cross in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus hangs upon a cross, dying for the covenant breakers, bearing the curse that was to fall upon them, so that all who have faith, repentance, and faith in Jesus Christ would receive the blessings of covenant obedience. For he's the law keeper. So it's not that Jesus just took away the punishment of our sins. He bore the wrath of God and faced it so that we would not. So when Jesus cries out, it is finished or paid in full, it is as though he took the cup of God's wrath, he drank every last drop, he flipped it over upon the cross, and he says, no more. 
It is finished. It is exhausted. He not only appeased the wrath of God, he expired the wrath of God. It is propitiation and expitiation. And in doing so, there is no more wrath left for us who are in Christ Jesus. He came to redeem us from the curse of the law, and he is making all things new. This is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see even in this work, he's beginning to show us what is lying ahead. The cross still is ever before him as he heals this man. But it doesn't end in the cross. Know that he rises from the dead so that he would secure for us the hope of resurrection. The gospel gives us hope for this life, but brothers and sisters, it gives us hope for the life to come for all eternity. So while you are struggling this day with the effects of sin and the curse, I want you to know and I want to remind you of this gospel hope. There is a day you will be freed. You will be freed of the infirmities. You will be freed of all the physical ailments. But most importantly, you will be freed from the last bit of remaining sin. The greatest act of grace that God does in the life of a believer is when he dies. The final perfection occurs then. He eradicates the last bit of remaining sin in the life of the believer at his or her death. And that person is raised to everlasting life, beholding the glory of the Lamb who was slain. When we grasp this truth by faith, we join the company with Paul, and we can say that this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. But we also recognize as we suffer in this world that some days are harder than others. Some days it takes all your strength because of your ailments to get out of bed. Christian, do not lose hope. Do not lose hope. Remember that by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Be encouraged. All right, back in verse 35 now. He was healed, and it says he spoke plainly. What do you think he said? What do you think came out of this man's mouth? Probably nothing for a little while. As he takes in the noise, a sensation he has not felt for a long time, and he's looking face to face with God who has just touched him and has totally transformed his life. I thought about entering into that man's shoes and maybe all I could get out is a mumbled thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Without a shadow of a doubt, this man worshipped. What we see from these verses is that Jesus heals the least of these. Verses 36 and 37, it is the only response that anybody should ever have after an encounter like this. Jesus is proclaimed by the least of these. Verse 36, he charges them not to speak of it, Mark continues the secretive uh, messianic theme. Remember in John chapter 6, verse 15, the people see the works of Jesus and they want to take him by force and make him king. Jesus says, that's not the plan. No, we're not going to usher in. There's still work to be done. The disciples need to be trained. The apostles need more training before they're to be sent out. We're not going to accelerate the mission and the passion of Jesus. No, he charges them not to speak of it, but they could not help themselves. Even so, the people speak of what 
he has done. Now, commentators on this passage are a little split. Some see it as this is the sinfulness of people who disobey Jesus and even after a good work. And others, no, look at this on a more positive light. I would find myself seeing this as a positive statement and not a negative one. And for two reasons. I think Mark is showing us first here in Jesus' charge is that Jesus didn't heal to get famous. He didn't do this to draw attention to himself. He healed the man because he loved him. Second, we would see here from this, when Jesus does a work in a person's life, they cannot keep silent. That's what I want us to see, and that's what I believe Mark is communicating here for us. And the reason is, is because of the, po- the positive statement that they make in verse 37. It says, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. This is their proclamation. He does all things well. Brothers and sisters, this is our proclamation. He does all things well. Jesus heals. Jesus saves. Jesus does all things well. So, how are we to respond to Jesus? As we have encountered the God-man here in this passage, how are we to respond to Christ? Well, let me just remind you, if you saw what we read originally in Mark chapter 5, what was the people's original response in chapter 5, verse 20? We would read at the end of the account, it says that everyone marveled. Everyone marveled. But now that's because they had heard the testimony. They hadn't witnessed the power of Jesus. They saw it in a person, and they heard the testimony of Christ. But now... They have witnessed in person the healing and saving act of Jesus. All the healings in Mark are tied to salvation. He, make, he, he wants you to make, make that clear. There's something bigger going on than just physical healing. This is salvation, a picture of it. And so what they have done is these people have heard the testimony of Jesus through this man. Now they've witnessed the power of Christ right before them. And what's their response then? Verse 37, it says they are astonished beyond measure. Take these together. How are we to respond to Christ? Christian, you have heard the testimony of Jesus Christ and you have experienced His saving grace in your life. So we are to marvel beyond measure. Marvel beyond measure at the beauty, the goodness, and the glory of Jesus Christ. So let me give you just a couple applications here and as we think upon this passage. First one I want us to see here as we would bring this to bear upon ourselves. I want you to know. Start with knowing. You must know that we are the least of these. Paul's words to the Corinthians, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, that's the key to this whole passage right there. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, 
who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we are the least of these. So first, know. Second, remember. Remember, Jesus had to come to you. We were once blind, deaf, mute, spiritually speaking, without life. Quite literally, Ephesians 2, we were dead people in our sphere of iniquity and transgression and sin. And had Jesus never come to you through the power of the gospel, through his spirit, you would never have come to him because you couldn't. And just because you couldn't, you also wouldn't. So remember, as we are the least of these, Jesus had to come to us. Third, trust. Know, remember, and trust. You need to, we need to trust this day that Jesus continues to save the least of these. Trust that he who has promised is faithful. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And in your trust, never give up hope. Never give up hope. Because the hope that you have is not resting upon how you feel or what you think. The hope that we have is in the promises of God who Titus 1 never lies. Never give up hope. Only give up hope if God changes. And that's never going to happen. Fourth, proclaim. Proclaim this. Jesus heals. He heals hearts. He heals relationships. He heals marriages. Jesus takes what is unwell and makes it well. What is broken, Jesus puts back together. Jesus heals. Jesus saves. Jesus does all things well. And finally, worship. We are to worship because of who he is and what he has done. In other words, marvel beyond measure. Father, we thank you for the person and work of Jesus Christ who loved us with an everlasting love, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, who now at this very moment is exalted at the right hand of the majesty on high, living to make intercession for his people. We thank you that he does all things well, that he is the captain of our salvation, and we worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.